Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. The following is an interview with Dr. Sanders Marble, Senior Historian at the U.S. Army Medical Department, Office of Medical History. Um, I have to start by saying that the views I'm giving today are mine, not the views of the Army or the Department of Defense or the United States government. Thanks again, Dr. Marble, for sitting down with us. We're going to talk about shell shock. I know this is an area where you've done some research. I mean, when people think about World War I, they often think about futile assaults against enemy machine guns. In reality, though, 60% of the 9.7 million military fatalities were due to artillery. The unprecedented firepower of artillery in World War I had another impact, though, shell shock. What is shell shock, and what are the symptoms, and who coined the term? Well, the, the term was first put into the literature, uh, an article written by Dr. Charles Myers, an English psychologist. It, and he did that in February of 1915, so very early in the war. But he says that it's not his term. He picked that up from some people who were already using that. But what is shell shock? It is the reaction to the stress of combat. They thought that it was a, a physical reaction to having a shell burst near you, that you were shocked by the, the explosion itself, uh, and that they couldn't find any physiological markers in you, any, any lesions was the, the period term. But they thought that there must have been some shock to your system because... Every disease has a physical cause, doesn't it? Because this is uh, before Freud and, and psychiatry are particularly advanced. Was World War I the first war in which military professionals encountered shell shock? And when did they realize this wasn't just going to be limited to a few cases? It's certainly not the first war when people have a psychological behavioral reaction to combat. People have gone back to the Iliad, the Trojan War, and found cases of people who break down due to the stress of combat, uh, the, the loss of friends and comrades, the fear of death. So it existed before the terminology changed. Uh, the American Civil War, it was often called nostalgia or soldier's heart. Uh, and that was a period when, if it was an algia, it was probably psychological, uh, or, or what we would call psychological. Uh, they had neuralgia uh, and uh, nostalgia, where the meaning, of course, has changed dramatically to today's nostalgia. Um, when did they realize it wasn't going to be limited? Probably in, in 1915, when the, the war is continuing for a while, uh, a lot longer than anybody had thought it would, uh, and you've got men in the trenches in, the, in or near combat for long periods of time, uh, with that taking a toll on their psychological reserves, I guess you could say. And that brings us to an, another question. Um, shell shock is initially classified as a physical injury, um, something commotional, the result of the soldier's brain perhaps being shaken by a concussive blast. But over time, the diagnosis or official explanation for the injury shifts to shell shock being something classified as an emotional issue, not a physical injury. Can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of that diagnosis? Sure. Initially, they're convinced that there is a physical cause for every problem you have. 
this is coming out of the 19th century when they've discovered bacteria and are convinced that there's a bacterium causing each disease. So they are looking for a physical cause for this particular problem. However, they're also seeing reactions to, to the stress of, of combat and military life in men who've never been in combat, men who haven't been under shell fire. So very quickly, the diagnosis is being stretched uh, from just somebody who was shaken by a shell uh, to somebody who is having a reaction to combat, they are or or not combat. Uh, they are overwhelmed by the stresses of military life. Okay, so s what you're saying is that not everybody that was diagnosed with shell shock was actually in combat. Right. Now, because it's a brand new diagnosis, different doctors are interpreting it differently. Uh, so some some doctor might say, well, I can't call you shell-shocked because you weren't shocked by a shell. Or somebody could say, I can't call you shell-shocked because you weren't in, even in combat. Um, you were in combat but not sh uh, shaken by a shell. Or, and somebody else might say, there's something wrong. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I'll use this new term shell-shock because it's mm. sort of a catch-all for me, and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Uh, and you see the same sort of thing in World War II. The, the, diagno the diagnosis has moved from shell shock to combat exhaustion or combat fatigue, which is probably more accurate, but it's also saying that it can only be done from combat. You have to have been in combat to be combat fatigued. Uh, so, But back in World War I, different people are, are applying it very differently. We don't have... ICD codes the way we do now. We don't have a, a DSM for psychological health problems uh, with either strict or mushy di uh, diagnostic criteria. And what was the treatment for shell shock during World War One? The treatment varies widely. Um, most cases it starts with rest. Uh, and well, the the treatment varies widely based on time, uh, country and the particular treating physician. Uh, in most cases, it starts with rest. You get the man, because it, it's, it's a man in those days, uh, get the man some rest, uh, dry clothes, a bath, some hot food, uh, and, and see if he's just too exhausted right now, if it's, it's what we would call an acute reaction versus a, a, a chronic reaction. Uh, if that doesn't work, then evacuate them further to the rear, uh, to a specialist hospital where different doctors try different things. They try things like psychotherapy, uh, talk therapies. They'll try hypnosis. They try, in some cases, uh, electric shock, either semi-punitively, uh, repeated shocks until you get better, or go almost catatonic. Um, some because some doctors are convinced that this is a, a failure of will that, that the person is is weak and needs to be bolstered uh, or disciplined in, until they they recover themselves and become manly again. And there's a rich vein of analysis of, of shell shock that sees it uh, uh, sees treatment of it as uh, in terms of masculinity and weakness. Later in the war. Uh, they find that if a soldier sees his 
card, his, his medical files, and it says shell shock, he knows he won't go back to the front because he's been shell shocked and he, he's not going to get better. Uh, because pretty early in the war, they decide that shell shocked men are not going to get better, are not going to be able to recover and, and go back to the front. Uh, so uh, the British and the Americans try to diagnose somebody NYDN, not yet diagnosed nervous to avoid saying you're shell-shocked and you're not going to get better, but make it, we don't know what's wrong with you, you'll probably get better with some rest, some hot food, and then if you don't, then we'll go further in and, and get a more uh, a firmer diagnosis. And it also avoided labeling somebody and, and that they have a mental health problem because they were aware then, as we are now, that stigma is a factor in psychological health. Was it also perhaps a morale issue in that they perhaps wanted to keep some of these men away from other soldiers? Yes. They're aware that some of the men who come back to the rear are just exhausted right now and, and need some rest. Uh, they're aware that men want to get away from the shells and the machine gun fire and the poison gas and the risk of death, and that there are guys who are saying, I'm too, I'm sick, or I, I can't take it right now, sorry, I need to go back to the doctor, that uh, they categorize as malingerers. And they, they want to get these guys away from the rest of, of the patients and, and get them to uh, somebody who has got at least some experience, not really a trained specialist, but an on-the-job specialist to get them the, the both the best possible treatment and an experienced sniffer to see if they're malingering as opposed to somebody who doesn't have any experience with this and might be fooled. Do U.S. medical personnel benefit from allied experience with shell shock and what is the American response? Question. American newspapers and, and medical journals had picked up uh, shell shock uh, in 1915 and, and the discussion was in before the public uh, if they noticed it. Uh, in, in 15 and 16 and earlier in 17. Um, so the public is aware or could be aware. Uh, doctors certainly were aware. The Journal of the American Medical Association published a review article looking at all the other literature that had been published uh, in November 1917. So six months or so after the U.S. declares war, but also uh, before so there are substantial quantities of U.S. troops in action. So they're well aware the Army had sent over uh, an, an eminent psychiatrist to England in August of 1917 to say, we're new at this war, tell us what we need to know about psychological health. And the British gave him everything they knew, uh, in the way that they understood it at the time. Not the way we understand it now, but they told him what they understood. He came uh, came back and wrote a 70-page report with all kinds of recommendations. Uh, then he went back over to France to be the senior psychiatrist in the American Expeditionary Force. Do we know how many American troops suffered from shell shock in World War One? Well, because of things like NYDN, uh, we don't. Um, there were uh, 3,647 men discharged from the Army for shell shock, but there were also about 7,500 men discharged from the Army for what they termed psychoneurosis, 
Uh, about 3,000 men discharged for psychoses, parenthesis, other, close parenthesis. So there are men who are having psychiatric problems in the army. Some of them are from combat. Some of them are not. Uh, and, and because of the way our draft boards worked at the time, once you received a draft notice and were approved by your draft board for military service, you were counted as being in the army. So guys would get their draft notice, go to the draft board for their physical, the draft board would say, sure, you're, you're, you're fine. And the army would say, whoa, this man's an amputee. <laughs> we don't want him. Or this man's clearly nuts. But the draft board had met their quota. And the army gets guys in who are not fit for military service for, for various reasons. Uh, so some of these guys uh, are certainly reacting to combat. Uh, some of them are epileptics who have uh, an extra seizure or, or have uh, extra seizures in the army. Uh, and some of them are guys who, who can't cope and are bedwetters because of the extra stress in military life. And the army says, we... we we don't need you because it's not going to work for you or for us. So they discharge them with some kind of psychiatric diagnosis. Because at this at this stage, psychiatry is even more uncertain than it is today. They don't have psychotherapeutic drugs. Um, they, they don't have the, the depths of, of behavioral therapies that we do today. Uh, they don't have the understanding that we do today. And I'll also say that we don't have the understanding in some ways that we think we do, because the, the TBI diagnosis, traumatic brain injury or concussion that, that we've seen a lot of in Iraq and Afghanistan, is reminding us that the actual blast of an explosion has an effect on our nervous system and our brains that they didn't dismiss in World War I, shell shock shocked the nervous system, shocked the body. Uh, and then in the mid-20th century, the psychiatrists said, oh no, it's all in your head, it's all a, a behavioral issue, let us take care of it. And in the la uh, very late in the 20th century, the neuropsychiatrists came in and said, well, there's a physical component too, uh, and the science is still unclear on that today. Did the diagnosis and treatment of shell shock in World War One lead to changes in U.S. Army medicine? Some. Uh, the Army co uh, comes out of World War One convinced that they can screen for propensity for breakdown, that there is a paper test that they can give you uh, that will say who is a, is a mentally prone to a breakdown, and that by administering this test, they can avoid the problem in the future. That would be great. Uh, and, and they go into World War II convinced that the, the tests they have will avoid this, so that they no longer need to put people uh, and re resources into psychiatric beds. And unfortunately, that's not the case. You can't test for propensity for, for stress breakdowns, uh, and they have to reinvent the whole pro, uh, program in, in World War II. So what they 
the lesson they come out of World War One with is actually completely wrong. But they don't know that at the time. Sometimes you read about um, PTSD being considered the contemporary equivalent of shell shock. Uh, do you think this is accurate? I, I'm not a behavioral health professional. There's certainly overlap between the two. PTSD talks about the psychiatric or behavioral reaction to a stressful event. A lot of shell shock is not the the reaction to the the blast wave from a high explosive shell. It is a reaction to the stress and strain of combat and military life. In that sense, they're probably the uh, essentially the same. There's a component of of shell shock which we now call TBI, traumatic brain injury. Uh, and we're not sure how much TBI and PTSD are the same. Uh, do TBI, do traumatic brain injuries cause P the same symptoms as the stresses that lead to PTSD? It's unsure still. Uh, and I, I am not going to speculate. Well, thank you for your time, Dr. Sanders. We've enjoyed talking with you. Certainly. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.